All right, we are uh, in week something another. What week is this? Five? Week five? It says right at the top there. Yeah. Week five? Okay. It's Roman Greek. Oh, that's the other place. Week five. Week five. All right. Week five. And we are looking at 2 Corinthians. And here is our outline, kind of where we're at. It's not easy to plug back in here because Paul has this very tight argument. One section depends upon another and another section depends upon another. And uh, so from chapter 2, verse 14 through 6, verse 10... It's sort of one long argument with a number of digressions. As I said, it's a little difficult to follow. But here's how we've outlined it. Paul's ministry was a sincere proclamation of the knowledge of Christ, 214 through 17. Two, the ministry's best recommendation was the lives of the Paul's converts. Three, Paul proclaimed the new covenant. Four, the ministry was carried out openly. The ministry was performed in bodily weakness. And now the ministry persuaded men from a proper motivation. So all this has to do with the character of Paul's ministry because the character of Paul's ministry is being questioned. Remember, he's had a lot of contacts with the Corinthian church. And what comes out very quickly in 1 Corinthians is the Corinthians have doubt about doubts about the apostle Paul as a person who would bring them truth. Remember, Paul's not bringing them New Testament epistles to look at. Now, he's, he's acquainting them with the Old Testament, but everything he's telling them is brand new. He's walking into Corinth telling them brand new stuff that they have never heard before. And who is this man? How does he do this? What's his authority? The kind of people they're used to are are men, especially, who have special qualifications. Uh, in Corinth, there were all kinds of speakers who would come through and gather pupils around them. The Greeks called these people the sophists, who would come in and they would make arguments, gather pupils, and they did it by persuasion. Remember I said the Greeks valued rhetoric, the ability to persuade people. It's not the message, it's the man that counts. It's not the message, it's the man that counts. And so how the man looks, how he dresses, how he speaks, how he makes his arguments, it's all about persuasion. And Paul is not concerned much about the man, he's concerned about the message. And that creates conflicts right from the beginning at Corinth. So Paul is trying to explain what his ministry is like, differentiating it from these teachers that they're used to. Remember in 1 Corinthians, there's a discussion about Paul and Apollos because Apollos in many ways is like a lot of those speakers who came to Corinth. He's a very polished speaker, quite a bit different from the Apostle Paul. And some people preferred him. You know, some say, you know, I prefer Apollos and I prefer Cephas. And, you know, they had different ideas. So Paul now is trying to explain to them what his ministry is like. He's defending his ministry and the character of his ministry. 
Well, now we're looking at number six here, chapter five, verses 11 through 21. We're kind of finishing up this character of Paul's ministry here. The ministry persuaded men from a proper motivation. A, let's look first of all here at the motivation of Paul's ministry. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're familiar with this concept, the fear of the Lord, the reverential awe that Paul had for Christ and his future judge, as I say here. Because Paul was keenly aware of his personal accountability, we saw that back in chapter 5, remember? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ because Paul is aware of his personal accountability He endeavored to persuade people about the gospel of Christ. And so he says, you know, what I am doing is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. Paul is saying, you should be able to see from my ministry and what I've been doing in Corinth that I'm I'm conducting myself with the proper motivation. Notice Notice verse 12. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. As I say here, Paul insists that these assertions about himself in relation to God and men should not be interpreted as another attempt at self-commendation. We saw that in 3.1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves? Instead, he wants the Corinthians to have ammunition to defend his apostleship. Remember, there are people coming in We'll see them especially in chapter 10 who are questioning Paul's authority, are questioning Paul's apostleship. Does he have the right to speak as he does? And Paul is saying, you should be defending me. I came to Corinth when you were just pagans and you accepted Christ. A church was established here. Now, why wouldn't you be defending me and what I preach to you? Everything you are is based upon me and my ministry to you. Why would you be listening to these other people? So the Corinthians had sufficient evidence in their personal experience with Paul as a legitimate apostolic authority to know and to defend him. I say here, those who oppose Paul are described as those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. That is, those who prided themselves on outward appearance. Remember, I talked about these speakers and these men. They looked on the outside. They made superficial claims to superiority over Paul. We're better speakers. We can communicate better. What is important, Paul says, is what's in the heart. It's the change in the heart that counts. Verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So maybe Paul's critics accused him of being out of his mind. This guy's out of his mind. Paul says, well, that's true. It's for your benefit. We're doing it for you. And it's for God. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. But we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So Paul now tells us the reason why for he should not he could not live to please himself. Christ's love, he says, compels us. I can't live for myself. The love of Christ 
showed for us compels us to love and serve him and others. He says, he talks about when he died. He says, because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. So he died, sin's penalty was paid, and we died. What does that mean? Therefore we all died. This is talking about our death to sin, our death to the self-life. Paul is constantly talking about that in Romans chapter 6, you remember. He talks about our death with Christ. What should we do? We go on sinning that grace may increase. No, we died to sin. So Paul says, when we're saved, this initial sanctification that, that takes place at regeneration is a death to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Paul says in Romans six, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So we're not given over to our own desires and our own pursuits, we have died to the sinful self. Paul says, since you have died with Christ, Colossians 3, you have died, and so forth. Paul is always talking about this. We are died to sin, died to the self-life, and Paul says, that's why those who died should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So we walk in newness of life, Paul tells us in Romans 6, 4. We're no longer slaves to sin, and therefore we have a new purpose. Now the message of Paul's ministry, we saw the motivation. Paul is not motivated by what's best for him, but what's best for others. He's died to the self-life. He's concerned about others. What's the message of Paul's ministry? So from now on... Because we're concerned about others, from now on we no longer we regard no no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So here's the since Paul's conversion. So from now on, he's talking about his conversion here. Paul ceased to make superficial personal judgments regarding men from a worldly point of view based on external appearances as was commonly done at Corinth. So Paul says, it's not my custom now to view men based strictly on a, a external appearance, accomplishments, and all that. Uh, I'm concerned only about one thing now, spiritual status. That's all I'm... I used to be concerned about Jew and Gentile, you know. That was, that was my thing. And I looked at people outwardly and... I looked at people incorrectly. He says, um, we once regarded Christ in this way. You remember what he says in Acts 26 when he's talking about his conversion? He said, I too was once convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put in prison, I cast my vote against them. And many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Paul says, my thinking was strictly from a worldly point of view. I viewed Christ as a kind of a messianic pretender. I'm this true Jew. Christ is this messianic pretender. I'm trying to bring these people who are following him to death. I was looking at things from a worldly point of view. But that's no longer true. We don't I, now since now from now on since my conversion, 
I don't look at the world that way. <laughs> there's only there's only one thing I'm concerned about. Is somebody saved or are they unsaved? Are they a Christian or are they not a Christian? That's all that really matters to me anymore. That's all I'm concerned about. That's all. That's the only distinction I'm making people. I don't look at rich or poor or intelligent or stupid. <laughs> I don't I don't care about any of those things. I just care about are they saved or are they unsaved? That's the only thing. That's my that's my the heart of my message. Verse 17. Therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So the second consequence, therefore the death and resurrection of Christ is that whenever a person comes to be part of the body of Christ by faith, there's a new creation on God's part. One set of conditions has passed out of existence. The old has gone, another is here to stay. This is a metaphor for regeneration. Paul is talking about the new creation. We have new spiritual life. We're regenerated. The new has come. The old self, the old man, is gone, Paul says in Romans 6. The old man is dead. And now we're a new people in Jesus Christ. There's been a radical transformation produced by regeneration. 18, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So, reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Uh, Reconciliation is just one aspect of salvation, like justification, sanctification, reconciliation. Reconciliation is the act of God based upon the death of Christ, whereby his holy displeasure against us is appeased, the enmity between God and man is removed and we're restored to a proper relationship. Remember Paul says in Romans 5, for if when we were God's enemies, now see, before we were saved, we were God's enemies. Now most people don't think like that. You know, often think of Henry David Thoreau, the famous uh, American poet. And supposedly on his deathbed, you know, a minister came to him and said to Thoreau, uh, uh, have you made your peace with God? He said, well, I didn't know we were at war. <laughs> well, that's what most people think, you know. Just, okay, God does his thing if there's a God, and I do my thing. You know, God doesn't bother me, and I don't bother God. No, guess what? You're at enmity with God. We were God's enemies. The wrath of God is abiding on us when we're unsaved. And he says, we were reconciled to him, so this enmity was 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 uh, removed. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? So reconciliation means that there was this wrath of God that Romans talks about in chapter 1. God has to punish sinners, and now that wrath is removed through the death of Christ. We've been reconciled, brought back into a right relationship with Christ. Yes. It's the act of God based on the death of Christ. So it's reconciliation is based on it's the basis of the death of Christ. So that God's displeasure, we could say his holy displeasure, his enmity, 
as Romans says, uh, enemies, so that his holy displeasure against sinners, sinful men and women, is appeased. The enmity is removed. We're no longer enemies at all. God doesn't consider us his enemies. And we're restored into a proper relationship. Into the relationship that God had with Adam before the fall. <clears throat> so Adam fell, and now Adam and God are enemies. <laughs> so there has to be reconciliation you know, through the death of Christ. Um, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors... As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. <clears throat> so remember, that's all Paul is concerned about. He doesn't look at people from a worldly point of view. He just looks at them. They're in Christ or they're not in Christ. They're reconciled. They're not reconciled. And therefore, God has made us ambassadors telling people, be reconciled to God. God says it is as if God were issuing a personal and direct invitation through him and other preachers to their hearers to enter into the benefits of reconciliation achieved by Christ. Be reconciled. That's what we do. We try to tell people. You need to be reconciled to God. You're in deep trouble. They don't know it. People don't know it, do they? They don't realize it. They believe they're okay. They think they're fine. But unfortunately, they're not. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul now explains the how of reconciliation. How is this possible? How could this enmity be removed? As Kent says in his commentary, here is the essence of what the gospel is all about. God the Father made Jesus, who was not unwilling in any sense, and who was absolutely sinless, to be sin for us. It must be noted that God did not make him a sinner. God does not make anyone a sinner. For then it would be not it would not be true that Christ had no sin. So in reconciliation, God made Christ to be sin. That is, he put upon him our sin. It's a judicial thing. It's a legal thing. But Christ himself, as Paul says here, he had no sin. And other texts, you know, say he committed no sin. In him is no sin. He did not sin. So Christ is not a sinner. He has not committed any sin. But as our substitute, he took the penalty for our sins. So he was viewed as, legally, a sinner. He was punished as a sinner should be punished, though he did no sin himself. He did this so that our sin could be imputed to him. There's that theological term that the theologians use, imputation. So God placed Christ, our sin upon Christ. He legally saw Christ as the one who did the sin. It was imputed to him. He took our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification, so that we might be declared righteous. So the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So there's a double imputation here. Our sin is imputed to Christ, though it's not his sin, it's our sin. And his righteousness is imputed to us, though it's not our righteousness. Martin Luther called it alien righteousness. <coughs> the righteousness we have is alien. It's not ours. It's somebody else's. But God says, I'm viewing you through Jesus Christ. I'm viewing you as righteous in Christ. 
verse uh, chapter 6, I guess we should say here. Chapter 6, number 7, service to God involved great hardship. Now, Paul's still talking about the character of his ministry. And all the time, remember, he's characterizing his ministry as a ministry of weakness, of suffering, versus the kind of teachers that the Corinthians were enthralled with. Health and wealth, we might call it today. You know what I mean? That's what people are enthralled with today. Health and wealth. That's the kind of message they want to hear. And that's what Paul is up against here, chapter 6. So service to God involved great hardship. A, admonition to receive his ministry. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, Paul's going to list his hardships here, uh, beginning in verse 3, because I said this title of this section, Service to God Involved Great Hardship. So we're going to get there. Paul's going to list the hardships. But before he gets there, he wants to make a little statement here about, I want you to be careful, Corinthians. Don't receive God's grace in vain. I hope you are taking note of what I'm saying to you. I say here, before giving a list of hardships that it characterizes his ministry, Paul first exhorts his readers about their response. This admonition is based on the truths explained in 5.11 through 21. So, God in Christ had dealt with sin. He had made salvation possible. Paul had chosen, God had chosen Paul and other ambassadors to take this gospel to mankind everywhere. He took it to the Corinthians. Paul looked upon him and his associates as co-workers with God and so forth. And as I say here, building on the fact that he was God's fellow worker, co-worker, and proclaiming reconciliation, Paul added the warning that his readers should not receive God's grace in vain. So it's possible to receive God's grace in vain. That is, it's possible to receive God's grace and appear to receive God's grace and not really receive God's grace, to receive it in vain. You know, it's the parable Jesus told about the soils, the various kinds of soils and the plant that grew up, the plants that grew up. Only one of those was really genuine. And Paul, throughout his epistles, will warn people about their need to persevere. We all are professors of faith in Jesus Christ. We all have professed faith in Jesus Christ. But just because a person professes faith doesn't mean they always possess faith. They may just have, we used to talk about a head belief, they may just say some words and appear to be genuine. But some things call into question our faith sometimes. Paul had questions about the Corinthians, as you can imagine. He'll say later on to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. When you've got all the things going on at Corinth, and they're saying all the things about Paul, there's a possibility that some of those people aren't really saved. There's always that possibility that some of those people are not genuinely converted. They've never really experienced regeneration, you know, because there's so much sin in their lives. You know, it's hard to tell. We come to Christ, we have tons of sin, but we're supposed to make progress. We're supposed to grow in Christ and so forth. But some people just don't seem to. They just seem to stay in the state they're in. They to kind of remain. What is what's happening? Well, Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Remember 1 Corinthians 15, he told earlier, he said, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. So this is not work salvation. No, you're saved by faith. But that faith, that genuine faith will continue. True saving faith will not will not fall away. It will not go away. It will continue. And that's what Paul is concerned about with some of the Corinthians. And that's what he's urging here. He's saying, listen, uh, I hope you haven't received the grace of God in vain. He's warning them, you know, about their conduct and what they're saying and what they're doing. So 2 Corinthians 6.1 here goes closely with the following verses which will form an appeal to the Corinthians to follow up their initial act of belief and acceptance of the grace of God with a consistent Christian life. If these people are really Christians, then their lives should show it somehow or another. And Paul is concerned that their lives may not be showing it. That's always the possibility here. Verse 2, For he says... In the time of my favor, I hear you. And the day of salvation, I helped you. I'll tell you now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. I say here to emphasize the seriousness and urgency of his appeal and to highlight the privilege of the present and the danger of procrastination, Paul quotes Isaiah 49.8 and applies it to this, past, to this passage, the age of grace. In the original content or context, the quotation belongs to the section of Isaiah 49 where the Lord directly addresses his servant who has been despised and abhorred by the nations, promising him vindication before men in due time and calling on him to carry on the work of restoration after the return from exile. So the point here, Paul is making an analogy. If the time of the exile's return was a day of salvation... In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. When the exiles returned, that was a time of salvation, a time of deliverance. And so Paul's point here is, if that was a time of salvation, then the time when God has acted in Christ to reconcile us to himself, reconcile the world himself, that's the greatest day of salvation. So Paul says, don't receive this in vain. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And so now is the time to receive the grace of God. Now is the day of salvation. How unthinkable that you would refuse the grace of God. The writer of Hebrews says, remember, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Well, now Paul gets to those hardships. Service involved great hardship. He's admonished them about receiving his ministry, accepting it. Don't receive it in vain. What I say is true. Now he's going to talk about the hardships, which is in direct contrast to these teachers. We put no stumbling block in any man's, anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So I say here as a fellow worker or co-worker with God who is acting as an ambassador for Christ, Paul tried to put no stumbling block at anyone's path so that his ministry would not be discredited. Now, as I say, it's inevitable that various accusations should have been leveled against Paul given the success of his ministry, the jealousy of men. 
But his concern was that these charges should be, he, he wants them to see that these charges should be totally without foundation. Paul, Paul says, I don't put any stumbling block in anyone's path. I don't want anyone to be able to bring some charge against me of dishonest conduct or inconsistent conduct. I don't want anything that would malign the gospel. The life of the Christian should be the most eloquent testimony, the most eloquent advertisement for the gospel, shouldn't it, really? <clears throat> Verse 4, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. So this is one of these hardship lists. Uh, we saw one in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We touched on that. We see them in 1 Corinthians 4. We see it. We'll see one in chapter 11. And Paul goes over these in order to sort of commend his and defend his ministry. Uh, give them material that they can use. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves, but we're giving you opportunity. And so I'm listing some of these things. Paul's commendation is not a matter of words, but of, of, of actions here. Now, Paul lists here in this list nine afflictions. They kind of fall in three groups, but they're introduced by this introductory phrase, in great endurance. We commend ourselves in every way in great endurance. And then he breaks them down into these series of threes. Um, the first three are in troubles, hardships, and distresses. So these are sort of just general trials. So the first three are sort of general trials. Uh, we have endured troubles, hardships, and distresses. Troubles are troubles. Oppressive experience, hardships refer to things he endured in his ministry. Distresses might be frustrations produced when there's no way out of a problem. These are just general things. Then there's a second group, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These are things inflicted by others on him. So Paul endured opposition from others. He endured beatings, imprisonments, and riots. And if you're familiar with Paul's ministry, you know about these beatings in Philippi and imprisonment in Philippi and these riots in Ephesus and so on and many other places Paul endured. And then there's this third group, um, which is um, voluntary things, things that he imposed upon himself, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. All these he brought on himself to carry out his ministry. He was willing to do hard work, to go without sleep, and to go hungry. Verse 6, impurity understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in, uh, in the right hand and in the left. So I say after the listing of the outward hardships in verses 4b through 5, Paul now turns to the inward virtues he sought to display in verse 6 and the spiritual equipment he relied upon in verse 7 during the discharge of his apostolic commission. So he lists these sort of inward virtues he relied upon. Purity, that means like moral uprightness. That's linked with patience and kindness. 
Uh, see, idea of moral blamelessness in dealing with others. Uh, understanding in the context of understanding God's will, probably what to do, wisdom. Uh, in the Holy Spirit emphasizes the one who indwells the believer, produces spiritual fruit, and so forth. So these are inward qualities Paul talks about. Verse 7, he talks about the proclamation of the truth in truthful speech and in the power of God. And then he uses kind of a military metaphor. Paul is fond of these military metaphors. He talks about weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. Usually these are thought to be a weapon in the right hand and the left hand are thought to be Weapons of righteousness for offense and defense. It's like Ephesians 6 here. Remember, Paul says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So there's another military metaphor, right? Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. I've left out some. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. There's one hand. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit in the other hand. So it's thought to be, you know, sort of the shield of faith for defense, maybe, and the sword of the Spirit for offense, that kind of thing. That may be what we have here when we talk about righteousness in the right and the left, kind of an offensive and defensive thing. Verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, personally, Paul says, and yet possessing everything. So I say at this point in Paul's resume, Paul may be reporting two opposite responses to his ministry. Those who oppose him see see him as a disgrace, a dishonor, a bad character, an imposter. Thus, in the context of verses 8 through 10, the paradoxical character of Paul's apostolic ministry is emphasized. Behind these verses probably lie a number of actual allegations his opponents made about him. So his opponents made these allegations. He's a bad character. And remember in Romans 3, he'll say something like in verse 8, Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim we say, Let's do evil that that uh, let's do evil that good may come. He says some people are telling, some people are saying that Paul goes around saying that Paul says, "Hey, let's do evil that that good may come." <laughs> that Paul is saying things like, "Let's do evil that good may come," and uh, so people were making these false accusations against Paul, and Paul is re- referring to that here. Um, so. Paul takes these various charges, he lets them stand and invests them with his own meaning here, supplies them with an opposite complement. Well, let's look at a new section here. So we're looking at Paul defends his ministry against criticism. We've been looking at a larger section B, the character of Paul's ministry, 214 through 610. That's been a lot of stuff in there where Paul is defending his ministry. And the problem we have in understanding a lot of that is, remember, is we're seeing one side of the conversation. We don't know what the Corinthians exactly are saying. We're trying to figure out what they're saying. 
Now we're looking in this final section here. This is the final part of this Paul defends his ministry. When we get to chapter 8 and 9, we pick up the section about the missionary offering, the giving section, 8 and 9. That's a nice section. It goes together. And then 10 through 13, we get that full defense of Paul's apostleship against the false teachers. So right now we're finishing up this section about Paul's defending his ministry in general. And he's doing it now with an appeal for separation from sin and full reconciliation to the Apostle Paul. So, Titus has taken to the Corinthians a letter that we called earlier the severe letter or the sorrowful letter. And he's come back with a response to Paul in Macedonia, and Paul is writing 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. And as we'll see later on here in chapter 7, the Corinthians have pretty much gone along with Paul. They have, they, as we've already seen, they, they said they have punished that offender, that guy who stood up against Paul when he made his visit over there. They have dealt with him and so forth. But there's still problems. And Paul's going to touch on one of those right here when he talks about full reconciliation. Notice he says, an appeal that the, an appeal that the Corinthians opened their affections to Paul. So Paul still feels like there's a barrier between him and the Corinthians. It's not on his side, but it's on their side. They're holding back. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts. As I mentioned, Paul doesn't usually address his readers by name. He often does it when he's kind of stirred with emotion, like, you foolish Galatians, Galatians 3.1. And when he's very happy about the Philippians, he talks about the Philippians' generosity in Philippians 4.15. So Paul is, is, is very concerned here about the Corinthians. I mentioned that Harris paraphrases Paul's words in 12.13. If there are any feelings of constriction or restraint in our relationship they are on your side, not mine. I appeal to you as my spiritual children. In fair exchange for my unrestricted affection, give me yours too. Now, Paul is aware that you know he wants complete reciprocity. He wants, a, he wants the reconciliation fully. But he's aware that affection can only be given. It can't be taken. He can't get this unless they give it. He wants them to give it. Now, why do you think they're not giving it fully? Well, here's the reason why, probably, this next section here, an exhortation to separate from unbelievers and from sin. This section, as I say, is a minor digression in Paul's argument in which he calls the Corinthians to holiness. He has just been lobbying strenuously for the Corinthians' affections, and he will continue that theme in 7.2. The command of 14 seems to come out of the clear blue. However, it may be likely that Paul is specifying the reason for the Corinthians' constraint toward him why they have not been as open with him as one might expect. And that reason is their ongoing partnership with unbelievers. And I'm sure you may have experienced this. You might have had a Christian friend who gets involved in some sinful activity, and immediately there's a barrier. You know, they don't want you to know what they're doing, you know, and that's, it's just going to happen. Well, here's, that's what's probably happening here. So Paul says in verse 14, um, Paul says in verse 14, 
Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what relationship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? As I say here, Paul has just appealed to the Corinthians for mutual openness in affection as in speech. His own heart is open wide to them, but he knows, and they know why they cannot reciprocate as fully as they ought. Some of them have an uneasy conscience about their committing, continuing pagan associations that they know Paul disapproves of. This section is actually repeating the main point of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22, where he warned the Corinthians of the danger of idolatry, where he says, flee from idolatry. Paul's opening injunction, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, is clearly not a prohibition against all associated with unbelievers, as he made clear in his previous letter, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through. Let me stop here for just a second. We didn't touch on this, but one of the problems the Corinthians had was they were raised in their culture. And in their culture, idolatry was everywhere. There were at least 26 temples or sacred places at Corinth. And people at Corinth, when they grew up, they spent their lives going to these temples and sacred places. They went to them because there were no restaurants in the ancient world. The temples were the restaurants. So you went there to the temple to celebrate a meal. You went there for, you didn't, you couldn't go to Chuck E. Cheese's to celebrate your granddaughter's birthday. You went to the temple. We have actual invitations from people at Corinth inviting people to the temple to come celebrate the first birthday of their baby, of their child, their first birthday party. It's at the temple. Now, the problem with going to the temple is when you go to the temple, there's always offerings to the pagan god or goddess. So there's always idolatry. Well, that's a big problem. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you can no longer go to that temple anymore. And they're saying, wait a minute, i got to go to that birthday party. i got to go to that celebration. The Kiwanis are having this event there, and i got to go, man. And they just can't understand why Paul won't let them go. And he says, no. Why? Because there is idolatry there. They're worshiping pagan idols. That's what's still going on here. This is a hard thing for them to break. But as I say here, Paul's injunction is not is clearly not a prohibition against all association with unbelievers. I mean, he's not just saying cut off everything. Remember, in his first letter, he says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So... Paul says on many occasions that he is not trying to remove all associations of believers with unbelievers. In fact, the case of a believer who is married to an unbeliever, what's happened here is you had two unbelievers, one of them got saved. (laughs) Two unbelievers, one of them gets saved. Should the believer leave the unbeliever? No. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So Paul says, I'm not talking about breaking all relationships here. I'm talking about entering into new relationships, as he says, you know, in 739. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So what Paul is concerned about with this 
do not be yoked together with oxen. Paul is concerned about initiating relationships with unbelievers. Um, he's offering a general principle which we have to apply with wisdom, the Spirit's guidance. Guidance. I would say, Paul is saying here, we shouldn't form any relationship, whether temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that leads us to compromise our Christian standards or our Christian practice. The consistency of our Christian testimony. So, I'm saying we shouldn't form any relationship, temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that we have to compromise our Christian standards, our Christian testimony. Um... And why? Because they don't share our standards, our sympathies, our goals, and so forth. Verse 10, For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The chief reason why believers are not to enter any compromising relationship with unbelievers is that they belong exclusively to God. And as I say here to prove Paul's point, he quotes from the Old Testament, various passages, Verse 17, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I say, therefore, introduces the practical implications of 14 through 16 in keeping with the promise of his presence and protection. God demands purity of life and separation from evil. So come out from among them. And then I will receive you, Paul says, God says. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons. And daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Here we have a series of quotations that ends with a weaving together of various Old Testament passages that God will be our true Father as we identify with Him. Verse 1 of chapter 7 really goes with what we said. Therefore, here's the conclusion, since we have these promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So this reference to body and spirit denotes the whole Christian, outwardly and inwardly. As I say here, Paul's exhortation here suggests the Corinthians had become defiled, perhaps by occasionally sharing meals at idol shrines, or by continuing to attend festivals or ceremonies in pagan temples, or even by maintaining their membership in some local pagan cult. So if Paul is saying if they make a break, with this pagan life in any and every form, they'll be bringing their holiness nearer to completion. So, when Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, he's talking about mainly entering into relationships. Now, if you're, if you get saved, and your brother, your mother is unsaved, you don't cut off your relationship with your mother. Uh, now, it's not going to be always the same with your mother as it once was, maybe. Or your brother. You and your brother used to go out and sin all the time. Did all kinds of sinful things. You don't cut off your relationship with your brother. You don't just have an Amish break it break up there. You're still, you're still going to see your brother at Thanksgiving and Christmas and your mother and so forth. But you have a different purpose now. You want to see them come to Christ and so forth. So you're not going to try to destroy that relationship. 
No, but they always bring up all those things that, that you did. Yeah. Yeah. There's always that There's always that's that. going to yeah. be there. <laughs> so I'm not talking about that kind of separation, but we have to be careful about entering into new relationships, you know, whatever they may be, with unsafe people. We have to be sure that they will not compromise our testimony, what we believe, and so forth. All right, I've carried you over. We'll stop here for the day.